You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 25th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today, my guests Daniela Pelled and Anna Rosenberg will discuss some of the day's top stories, including EU ministers get together to talk about trade and the future of their relationship with the UK, where the line is between precaution and panic when it comes to coronavirus, plus can a movie help with mending between two nations? Also ahead... A new batch of polls suggests support for the current transition government is falling. Bolivia is due for elections soon, but Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco reports that a tough campaign may lie ahead. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined in the studio by Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting and columnist for Haaretz, and Anna Rosenberg, Head of Europe and the UK at the political consultancy Signum Global. Well, let's start with Brexit, which despite what we were told ad infinitum and indeed ad nauseum in the weeks prior to January 31st, has emphatically not been done. EU ministers are meeting today to draw up their mandate for trade talks with the UK. Here in London, their UK counterparts are convening at Downing Street to discuss their opening stance. It remains to be seen whether the UK's present government has fully absorbed that sending in gunboats to make them buy our opium isn't going to cut it any more. Um, Anna, how well do we imagine this is all going to go? This Uh, is not going to go very well. You're imagining our shock. Uh, Yes, I am. It is going to get worse before it gets any better. What you've seen since Brexit happened, even though it didn't get done, is a, is a tightening of positions on both sides. As it really kicked off with uh, Johnson's speech on the, I think it was the 1st or the 2nd of February, um, where he has been you know, laying out quite an aggressive stance towards the EU. And now the EU is retaliating. I think this is going to get worse. We're going to see negotiations heat up quite a bit with expectations about a no-deal outcome mounting. But eventually, we'll probably reach some sort of mini-deals in certain sectors because there is an aspiration for both sides to actually work together. And by that point in time, because the negotiations will have gone so badly, those will be very well received. And they're going to mask the fact that there may not be a few other agreements on sectors where there's not an agreement. So the ultimate outcome is going to be quite mixed. Um, Daniela, do you anticipate the EU being purely pragmatic about this? Because the, the way the EU has pitched this the last few years is that, and it, it is a, I think, a delineation that certainly the Remainer camp here in the UK has bought quite enthusiastically into that the EU is purely pragmatic and reasonable, whereas the Leave tendency in the UK is insane and um, insatiable. Um, Do we actually imagine the EU will be purely pragmatic at the business end or is there going to be a bit of a desire just to give the UK a bit of a kicking? Well, I think both sides, uh, what they have in common right now is their position is we want the same as before, but not. Uh, That's basically the the starting point. Uh, The EU has does have an advantage when it comes to being practical about this because Boris Johnson, and I'm going to shock you here, is madly playing party politics and that's his whole approach to Brexit, this idea of nationalism and uh, his new brand of uh, conservatism. Whereas the European Union uh, has the disadvantage of all having to agree but also 
have a practical position. They're not, um, they want the EU to carry on as before. So they want to punish Britain a bit, but not not too much. But the, the, the motivation, um, which we have from our side, from our supposed negotiating team, which, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, it's called XS, <laughs> uh, which is alarming, it's, it's much as it sounds like a cheap aftershave, uh, and is composed entirely of, of hard Brexiteers, they have uh, the, their interest in Brexit is very, very far from, from practical. It's ideological, it's nationalistic, and that will lead it to places which... Um, you know, which are not looking for practical solutions. Pretty Patel's idea about uh, uh, immigration for work purposes, and apparently we have this enormous, uh, um, this enormous stock of people who just happen not to be working right now, but they will step up to take all these. Uh, all these jobs that European migrants are not going to take, uh, you know, it's made up. It's made up for political purposes. So from that point of view, we are at a disadvantage already. Um, Anna, Daniela there mentions the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Uh, to the extent that we do understand what outcome he actually wants, and, and reasonably enough, he may be being cagey about that for political reasons, as people often are uh, at the outset of any negotiations. But he has made vaguely positive noises about what's called a Canada-style deal. Um, Michel Barnier has explicitly said that is not going to happen. Does that strike you as a bit of an opening gambit by Barnier, or is Barnier actually saying what he means, that no, it's not an option? I think it's not an option because of the level playing field. It's a no-go for the EU. They would be allowing the UK to become a very serious competitor to the to the EU. And I think that's just not going to happen. So I think at this point in time, the, the mini deals that I was alluding to are, are more likely. I think for Johnson, and we have to think about this, he has just won a five-year mandate, if not even a 10-year mandate. He has, as, as Daniela pointed out, um, you know, fueled nationalist sentiment already. He's tightened control to some extent over the media. He has silenced uh, to some extent critics um, that are not as enthusiastic about Brexit. Uh, you know, we saw that in the cabinet reshuffle. We saw that in exclusions of the CBI, the business group that is Brexit critical. He's controlling the narrative. So what I think is going to happen by the end of the year is that the UK is going to be in a place where it is ready to accept whatever outcome he brings to the table. If it's a deal, fine, which which we think is going to happen. If not, um, he'll, the UK is, is going to embrace this in a, in a nationalist spirit, like the Dunkirk spirit, to some extent. So, so Johnson, <laughs> the, the Dunkirk spirit, an exactly, Im improvised retreat exactly. from a self-created shambles on the continent. Well, in that in that moment, you're then going to see Johnson open the money taps and start to inject quite a lot of fiscal stimulus into the economy. And so he's probably going to try and, and spend his way out of any harsh economic consequences. And as a result of of that um, he, in a, in a few years' time, by the time we get to the next elections, is going to have achieved his goal in a way by breaking loose from the EU, but at the same time regaining sovereignty and um, just kind of fueling nationalist sentiment. Well, that's something to look forward to. Um, Daniela, on which subject? I mean, it's, we, we know what is going to happen when this gets difficult or tough or things go wrong, which is that the UK government and the Leave tendency generally will blame perfidious Johnny Foreigner across the, the channel for, for thwarting um, Albion's ascent to the sunlit uplands, etc., etc. This may be a self-answering question, but is there the remotest chance at all that the blaming the EU thing 
thing isn't going to work forever. That at some point, some opinion might shift among the Leave tendency towards the British government just saying thinking, you know, you are actually in charge, solving problems is now your job. Well, they've also got the Ramonas to blame as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you see, they can spread the the joy. Oh, look, uh, you know, I think we've already taken our our cue from the Johnson government. Uh, He's won, indeed, a mandate for five years, probably 10, uh, without any real opposition, um, despite all... You know his appearance, his political uh, behaviour and, and personal behaviour, and his uh, reputation for trust. He is in an amazing position. He's extremely uh, firmly established and not even inclined to um, bring the country together, really, apart from paying lip service to this. So I think he's in a great position to to blame the EU, to blame uh, partners in the UK for not cooperating. And the other thing that he has in his toolkit is the fact is that, and this is this has been the case um, uh, really for the last four years, things haven't become apocalyptic yet. As much as uh, people who wanted to remain like me were saying, this is going to be a disaster, this is going to be a disaster, it hasn't been. As long as it isn't a disaster, uh, he has an advantage. And when when and if it does become disastrous, well, there will be, be enough uh, time and space in between Brexit and the apocalypse to be able to <laughs> deny all connection. Um, just a final thought on this one, Anna, because you mentioned the prospect of mini deals and certainly a subject that's going to come up is is fishing. Do we yet understand quite where the Leaver's morbid obsession with this subject comes from? Because it got talked about so much and has been talked about so much in the last few years and it is an infinitesimal fraction of the British economy. I think the problem in the British fishing industry has fairly little to do with the EU. There are other reasons why fishing quotas and rights and regulations have destroyed the British fishing industry, but somehow it has become a poster child of why we're doing Brexit. Um, I think there is a lot of misconception, um, but it is a very powerful message. And one of the first things that happened um, after the, the famous speech in Greenwich was that uh, Johnson announced that the UK was going to um, buy and hire more vessels to patrol British fishing waters. And on the same day, I think it was the 1st or 2nd of February, French fishermen were not allowed access into Guernsey fishing waters. So it's going to become a very emotive um, area. Where the obsession ultimately stems from? Well, I think because of the demise of the fishing industry overall, that has at its roots fairly little to do with EU regulations. Daniela Pellet and Anna Rosenberg, thanks both for the moment. We will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Carlotta Ribello with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The former Egyptian president, Hosni Mubarak, has died in Cairo. He was 91. Mubarak spent three decades in office before a popular uprising swept Egypt. He was found guilty of complicity in the killing of protesters during the revolution. But that conviction was overturned in 2017. The former Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein has been convicted of rape and sexual assault. He will be sentenced next month and could be expected to spend the next 25 years in prison. Weinstein's accusers have welcomed the conviction, but it's thought that his legal team will now lodge an appeal. And Germany's Christian Democrats will hold a special meeting in April to decide who they want to succeed Chancellor Angela Merkel. The CDU's succession debate was blown wide open earlier this month when Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer said she would no longer seek to succeed Merkel. Back to you, Andrew.
Thank you, Carlotta. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Anna Rosenberg and Daniela Pellet. Well, let's move along and look at the arrival in Europe of the coronavirus COVID-19. For reasons as yet unclear, the major outbreak so far has occurred in northern Italy, where more than 200 cases are now confirmed. Eleven towns in Lombardy and Veneto have been closed off, effectively quarantining 50,000 people. Elsewhere, many public events in the general vicinity have been cancelled or curtailed, those affected include Milan Fashion Week, the Venice Carnival and several Serie A football games, while many museums, schools and other institutions are closed. Um, Daniela, where is the line in circumstances like these between precaution and panic and are we still on the right side of it? Uh, I'm not sure we are. This is this. Uh, this all seems very flavoured with panic, especially because there isn't. Uh, there, everyone seems to be making their own rules about what is involved. Stay at home for two weeks. Be quarantined. You're fine if you don't have symptoms. Uh, one of my team has just come back from skiing in northern Italy uh, and sent me a WhatsApp this morning. Oh dear, I'm going to call one one one. Apparently one one one, which is the is it one 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 or one one three? It's anyway, what, when you're not all that sick. It's yeah, exactly. It's like nine nine nine. But, but much less. Uh, and apparently he was told, like, if you're feeling OK, you can go into work, which I think he was very disappointed by. <laughs> so even the, within the European Parliament and the European Commission have got two different rules for what their, their staff should do. No one really knows. And uh, there's a, a level of, of immense um, stupidity and paranoia about this as well. I mean, I think I'm perhaps uh, I should be a little bit more worried because it's becoming quite hipster to say I'm not worried at all about coronavirus. But the panic and um, the disinformation and the willful misinformation as well uh, is creating such a, you know, such a tizzy amongst society internationally as well. Uh, that I think that currently is the uh, is the emergency. We might be prepared to deal with a health emergency, but not the corollary, which is a panic emergency. emergency. And tizzy is an undervalued and underrated and underused word. Thank you for that. Um, Anna, is there a problem that the precautions could actually make things worse? Because some of the measures we are seeing instituted, instituted rather, not just in Italy, are extraordinary, most obviously uh, in China and South Korea. But just in the last hour, uh, Turkish airlines have diverted a flight from Tehran to Istanbul to Ankara. Uh, and it has been announced that everybody on board is going going to be quarantined for 14 days. I actually quite disagree with um, Daniela's point here. I am more worried about this, not from a health perspective, but from an economic perspective. I do think we're taking this too far too lightly. The world is not in a very good state economically right now. You see very low growth in Europe at this point in time. The world is heavily dependent on strong GDP growth from China. People are already freaking out if China slows somewhat below 6%. Now, we're already talking about 3% GDP growth in Q1, if not even 0% GDP growth in Q1. Now, the knock-on effects on the global economy are going to be significant. But is that is that to do with... the? That's all true, but is that to do with, again, the thing itself or the response to it in, in the same way that financial crashes themselves get accelerated by everybody freaking out and selling? Exactly. I mean, I don't know. The answer is for sure there's a panic reaction to this. But I do think that so far people are they are likely going to behave in a, in a, in a somewhat irrational way. They're going to reduce exposure to restaurants and cinemas and, and, and whatever other activity there is in public life. And that's going to have a knock on effect. But I think that ultimately this is a virus that is killing people and it's 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 
its rate, its deathly rate, it's higher than than the flu. So it needs to be contained because you don't know how how much further it can go. And if it already has created havoc in the Chinese economy, if you just let it spread, that's going to create much greater havoc into other economies as well. So I think that the authorities are trying to control it. Of course, there are secondary effects to it. Um, I'm not a health expert. I can't really comment on the fact if those are you know, appropriate measures or if they're exaggerated. But I am, I am worried for, for the financial system. I am worried for the economies. Like just let me give you a number here. I mean, Italy is, uh, is dependent on 30% of its GDP is dependent on tourism. So you already see, mm. you know, um, warnings against uh, airlines, uh, falling profits. That's going to likely put the Italian economy into a recession. And that's not going to have very good economic consequences. However, there's a silver lining here. We've been talking a lot about political tensions and trade tensions. If this starts to affect the European economy overall and also the UK, the UK is also a major exporter and importer from China, what you're going to see is that politically there's more room for agreement and trade tensions to actually calm down because people and the economies are going to be suffering from this. So they may be more willing to agree on things politically with potential upsides for Brexit negotiations. Uh, Final quick thought on this one, Daniela. You mentioned the misinformation and disinformation. How much of the reaction or even overreaction in Europe do you think derives from the fact that the the biggest clusters uh, of this virus so far, well, two of the biggest clusters in China and Iran, uh, are in two countries whose word for anything you can't necessarily all always take to the bank. Are people worrying that it might actually be worse than it looks? I'm sure it is worse than it looks. That's quite that that's uh uh, that that's highly likely. No, I think that the panic is that is that not if it's happening in Europe, if it happens far away, well, that's okay. It's a thing that happens far away. I think the fact that it is spreading and that everyone is enthusiastically reported as they would do, of course, that we have a, a cluster here and we've got isolated cases here and we have people on cruise ships broadcasting and YouTubing it live. That's what I mean. It's become a social panic uh, as opposed to uh, you know, a, a carefully calibrated risk, uh, and that's inevitable. And I, uh, because people, people are not health experts. People are worried, are worried about about these things, and uh, uh, and panic continues. And I'm sure that uh, when we unpick the details of all this, there will be an awful lot of um, uh, social media trolling and misinformation from from Russia and other actors as well, because it really, really works. Well, finally, on today's news panel, a slightly more heartwarming story, an apparent thaw in the traditionally frosty relations between South Korea and Japan, prompted by a somewhat unlikely source of warmth. South Korean director Bong Bong Joon-ho, rather, Oscar-winning film Parasite, is proving an enormous hit in Japan, Uh, and Bong and the film stars have been widely fated on a promotional tour of Japan. As reported in this morning's Monocle Minute, and as we heard earlier on the show, Bong was at pains to express his appreciation of the appreciation. Um, And can a moment like this, at which two countries who don't usually get on, you know, decide that one's done something that the other actually quite likes, can that that be a thing? Can it have a knock-on effect? I do think so. I think it helps understanding another culture. 
I was thinking earlier in preparation for the show and also discussing with Daniela if there are other examples that we can come up where where there are other books or, or movies have created a similar empathy. And quite frankly, we didn't quite come up with a lot of examples. <laughs> However, what, what I came up um, thinking about this morning was, was this series uh, recently called um, Deutschland 83, Germany 83, which was about um, the GDR. Uh, and, and it was really good. I enjoyed it, was, it. Ironically, it was incredibly popular outside of Germany. <laughs> so I think it created a lot of understanding of how people lived uh, during the GDR regime. Whereas in Germany, people were like, this is not how, how, how things were over here. And they're kind of not portraying us in the right way. So, uh, But at least I think it created a bit more understanding of, of a German experience that is generally underreported. See, Daniela, where I come from, it's, it's usually the opposite. It usually just consists of my people annoying New Zealanders by referring to Crowded House as an Australian band. Um, but, but are there examples you can think of in which, in which hostile peoples have been brought together by a work of art? I'm trying very, very, very hard, and it's not easy. All I can come up with is that everywhere I've travelled, for instance, in the Middle East, with people really not very keen on Americans, uh, everyone loves those sort of Hollywood action films. I mean, that is the that is the the uniting force. Um, uh, during in Afghanistan during the uh, Taliban era, everyone liked Titanic. I'm sure sneakily quite a few Taliban uh, commanders did too. Uh, <laughs> beyond that, I'm struggling. Uh, hummus? Oh no, that's cultural appropriation. Oh, don't, that's a, that, no, we, we, we don't have no. time at all, uh, <laughs> not on this item or indeed in, in the rest of our lives to deal with the whole hummus rivalry thing. That, that is a show in itself. Um, and, and can it actually, is it more often the fact that art is used as kind of a, a you know, a, an instrument of, of sort of soft power war, really? I mean, famously during the Cold War, the, uh, the America in particular were keen on attempting to undermine the, the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet sphere with American jazz. Yes, absolutely. And I think in a way you're currently, uh, you're currently witnessing cultural influence war already going on by, uh, with Netflix Amazon Prime, Channel 4 trying to do a, 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 you know, what was it called, this um, Walter Presents series where they're trying to showcase European shows. I think culture and art has always been a way to influence other societies and in a way to, to show who's the more powerful. So absolutely. I think generally art is created to to point attention to things that aren't going quite right. But I do think it does also bring people together in many ways. Daniela Pellet and Anna Rosenberg, thank you both. In a moment, a look ahead to Bolivia's elections. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Bolivia is due for elections soon, but with the aftermath of the former president's messy ousting still lingering, a tough campaign may lie ahead. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco explains. Bolivia's general election on the 3rd of May will be hotly contested. A new batch of polls suggests support for the current transition government is falling. Bolivia has been through some dramatic moments with the resignation in November of Evo Morales. He had been in charge for 14 years but was forced out after a disputed election the previous month. Opposition Senator Janine Agnes took power as interim president, but the limelight doesn't appear to be helping her. She's currently only third in the polls, while Morales' preferred candidate, former economy minister Luis Arce, leads with 32% of the vote, followed by former president and centrist candidate Carlos Mesa.
It's a sign that, while Morales himself may not be on the ballot in May, his supporters aren't going anywhere. Still, it could be tough for Arce to win outright. If he doesn't take a majority in the first round, the other candidates could rally behind his opponent in a runoff. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Charlie German. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.